Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast. My name's Mike Calvin. I'm joined by Susie Rack of The Guardian, Katie Wyatt of The Daily Telegraph, and by Rich Laverty, creator of the Women's Top 100. Arsenal are Super League champions for the first time in seven years. Excellently coached, tactically flexible and resilient, they deserve to win the title. Chelsea gave it all against Lyon, probably the world's best team but they won't be back in the Champions League until next September at the earliest. The stage then is set for Saturday's FA Cup final. Manchester City are unbeaten domestically. West Ham are a new team put together in six weeks. An upset possible? Anything's possible. <laughs> um, I mean, Manchester City have been so consistently good all season, um, particularly defensively, that it's it's hard to look past them. Um, they've got the experience of winning trophies, but what Matt Beard's been able to do in quite a short period of time is, is really impressive. And he has got very, very experienced players in that uh, in his starting eleven. You know, he's got a couple of players who won won the trophy last season with um, with Chelsea and um, Claire Rafferty, uh, Julie Flaherty, and Becky Spencer. So three. So there's yeah, there's a huge amount of experience within within his sides um, that you can call upon. Yeah, anything is possible. Mm, it's been a huge week, well, you know, a huge season for women's football, Katie. How important is it for that to be sealed by a really good game at Wembley in front of a big crowd? I think it is huge because I mean it's the showpiece event for women's football in this country, isn't it? The attendances are just ten thousand the times of the best Super League game, so it's the massive big spectacle in this country. And I think, as you say, the, the year that we've had for women's football in this country, the Barclays deal, Chelsea having a really good Champions League story, even though they fell short of the last hurdle, has felt like a really special year in the first year of the Super League being a professional league for the first time. And I think even though we were having this conversation about um at the Man City Chelsea semi final, that you would have wanted an all London team final. And I said, no, it's really good that you've got a North and South team because sometimes the North kind of get forgotten about that we've only got Man City, Durham, Sheffield United. We haven't got massive representation up there. So it is, I think it's just a really good throw. We're talking about, um, you know, City have got the uh, record of winning trophies and a lot of people are expecting them to just walk, not walk it, but. Um, they're definitely favourites to win it. I think that you're looking at a, a West Ham team that have held Arsenal really close this season and you're looking at, um, even if, let's say, it was Arsenal or Chelsea, there's no guarantee that it would be a closer game because 
you know, Arsenal beat Chelsea 5-0 at the start of the season, then Chelsea beat them 3-1. So it's no guarantee that it would be any closer if it was one of the two London clubs or the more like traditional powerhouses of women's football. Mm. Let's look at Manchester City, if we could, please, Rich. Um, Nick Cushing, 34. That's the sort of identical young coach that probably the women's game would attract. Can you give us an insight into, one is principles and philosophies, but how practically he's put his team together and what he wants to do as a coach? Yeah, I mean, Nick's very clear and he's always been very clear in terms of how he wants to build his squad. You know, he buys predominantly young British players, which he wants to develop. And, you know, anybody who knows about Nick's background before the women's game, he worked in the Man City Academy, he coached kids of all ages and he's never really been interested in signing sort of the big foreign players and I think possibly we've always had the perception of Man City because of the men's game they would buy big players you know from abroad and bar a couple you know obviously Carly Lloyd came in Kosovari Aslan it's never really happened and Nick is a development coach almost in some respects you know he will buy players from academies or, or elsewhere that are 18 19 20 and he develops them you know into to top WSL players and and you know many of them go on and be England internationals as well because that's the point, isn't it, Susie? The broader point, anyway, that if you've got a, an influential coach creating homegrown players, that has to be good for the game in general, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. Um, and one of the one of the big questions around the women's, uh, around the women's game is uh, with the league going professional, will it mean that we see more foreign players coming in, into the league, and will that be to the detriment of of England in the long term when the professionalism of the league was very much about doing so in line with uh, with the development pathways for the Lionesses and uh, and having a very strong relationship between the national team and the league. Um, whether whether that happens is another thing. Obviously, Arsenal have only got four English players in their, uh, mm. uh, in their team. Um, but it, is that a bad thing? They've got some incredible talent within that side. It would be a shame to not have them here as well. Mm. You know, City, let, let's be honest, they can afford to carry a £1 million loss for last mm. season. Um, they won the Conti Cup. In their strategy for the football club, is it enough for Manchester City to win the double? I know that sounds daft, mm. but you know they didn't win the Champions League, or they, you know, and they didn't win the Super League. Is it a sort of an easy ozy type of season? I think it's a difficult. I think there's a few things to unpack there. I think that, like you said, the deficit thing is right ultimately because when you go to Man City games, you do look around and you think you've got players like Steph Hort and Jill Scott who will be the better paid of a lot of players in the English league and the, the amount of money that they kind of chuck at making that their home game's a real occasion for families. So they give out free hot drinks, you get free T-shirts, they fired out of a cannon. Do you look at it and you're not surprised actually that they're operating at a loss because everything around it is like just so far ahead of what everyone else does? Um, so I think that's more just the question of how you know budgets in general and balances and and disparity and everything and whether you know it's right to have your elite four or five teams in the same league as clubs like Bristol or Yeovil or Everton or Liverpool that are competing on a different um, level. So that's a different set of questions. But then in terms of you know their performance this season, it's strange because you're looking at a season where they're going to finish unbeaten and they've just been hamstrung by a couple of draws for those sides like Reading and Bristol that have held them to draws and been really difficult for them to beat have kind of ended up being the um, kingmakers in a title race that would be like the Men's Premier League where neither of them's really put a foot wrong. Um, so it's a bit strange in that sense. But I think it's hard. You know, Emma Hayes was making the point to us that when you have a 
a, such a small league with only 11 teams, you there's no real margin for error. It's not like you can lose loads and loads of games and still win the title. It's that if you are drawing a few or you lose a few, then you know your, your title challenge, or your, in their case, their title defence can be over very, very quickly. So I think until you see that extrapolated into a 24-25 game season, you are going to have um, a lot more... It's going to be a lot harder for teams like Man City, as consistent as they are, to have to be the demand on them to go a whole season without making a slip up. I think it's a di the different question. Mm. I don't think City could be too disappointed based on last season as well, where they were undefeated and top of the league until kind of quite quite late on into the season, and then things fell apart in kind of February time, uh, and they finished completely empty-handed. So two trophies and an unbeaten season, potentially, if they manage to get a draw or a result against Arsenal at the weekend, uh, isn't anything to be sniffed at, I'd say, on their terms. But they will want more. Mm. What sort of game would you tell the uninitiated to expect, Rich? What, what, what are the elements within the game that you think will be decisive? From the FA Cup final? Yeah. I think experience is a big thing. I remember two years ago when... Man City were in their first cup final, but they were playing Birmingham. It wasn't their first cup final, but it was the first cup final for a lot of their players. And they'd just played each other actually the week before at the CFA and Birmingham drew 1-1 and they, you know, it was a very creditable and, and deserved result. On the day, Man City's players that, you know, played internationally, they had, you know, Carly Lloyd was was leading the line, much bigger pitch as well. And a whole different occasion and Man City were 3-0 up after half an hour. And you could tell, you know, Mark Skinner admitted afterwards that that experience kind of, you know, counted against his players at certain stages. For West Ham, it's interesting because they've got a lot of young players that, that haven't played at this level and haven't played at, at Wembley, but you've got Claire Rafferty, you've got Jilly Flaherty, you know, have played in several FA Cup finals at Wembley. Kate Longhurst is one of the most experienced players in the game. Jane Ross has played for Manchester City. And Matt Beards, you know, maybe newer fans who were who came into the game whilst Matt was in the USA perhaps don't know him as well, but he's a two-time WSL winner. So I think West Ham, I think they've got the ability to make it a good game. It's just whether that extra experience that Man City have of playing at Wembley of the big occasions just counts against West Ham. Mm, because it's interesting. You know, if, you, if you boil it down, Katie, you know, Matt Beard came in on June the 7th last year mm. to put a team together and to, to reach the showpiece occasion of the season is one heck of an achievement, isn't it? It's a huge thing. I think this is the weird thing that Rich said that a lot of it is that the last few years in the Super League when Matt was out in America, you sort of forget that he um, did really well at Chelsea, did really well at Liverpool, um, won the title and everything. And the picture kind of changed so much since after he came back with Chelsea becoming a real force and Emma Hayes, Liverpool regressing a little bit. Um, so it's sometimes it's strange that we don't often talk about him in the same bracket as Nick Cushing and Emma Hayes when really you look at his pedigree, you look at the things he's achieved, there's no reason that he shouldn't be in that discussion. Um, which is slightly strange. But yeah, as you say, it's been interesting, obviously, following their progress on that documentary that they've done mm. with BBC Three and everything, just that, you know, they had two players that they retained from when they were in the third tier. And then to now that those players have had to adapt, get fitter for professional football, they've had to get used to everyone around it, the infrastructure changing, the demands on them being a fully professional team, for them to have done that in such a short space of time. Um, under such kind of pressure and under such constraints and to get some of the results that they've had, I think it's been a really good first season for them. But if you look at Matt as well, in terms of when he was at Liverpool, you know, mentioned Nick there and how he builds his teams, Matt's almost the complete opposite. Obviously, you've got your foundation there of 
solid English players, and it was the same at Liverpool. He had Farrah Williams, Gemma Bonner, Lucy Bronze, Tash Dowie. But he's got this unique ability to kind of pluck unheard of foreign players out, put them into his team, and they work. You think back at his Liverpool team, players like Nicole Rolser came in, Katrin Omas Dottier, Whitney Engen, Libby Stout, players that, you know, in England we didn't know. And he turned them into title winners straight away. And you look now at Alicia Lehman, you know, nobody here had really heard of Alicia Lehman. She was up for PFA Young Player of the Year last year. Julia Simic, Erin Simon, Brooke Hendricks, you know, players like that. He brings them in, you know, really from places where not many other WSL clubs are signing players. And he builds a really solid team out of the experienced English players and then kind of the young, sort of more flair players from abroad. Mm. What I found intriguing, Susie, was listening to Matt Beard talk about United States players, American players, being less astute tactically than British players. I suppose that's just another aspect of his broader experience, is it? Yeah, the American game is is very different to the English game. It's um, not not as technical and as tactical. It's very much uh, a... Uh, uh, what do they call it? Not in the right the way they describe it. Mm. I want to say backwards and forwards, but I can't think of it. Like right. tennis match. <laughs> a bit like basketball where they go one end oh, to yeah, the other yeah. end. Yeah, yeah it's uh, I, I, they've, they've got they've got a little phrase for it that I can't I can't think of, but um but yes, yeah, it's, it's a very different style of game. It's very fast paced um and uh, and yeah, it doesn't involve much much kind of tactical uh tactical play. I think that's why Nick uh, why Mark Skinner could do really well over there because he's bringing um a quite a quite a tactical approach to to their league, well, like a framework. Yeah, yeah, and um, yeah. I what, what's what's great about Beard is when you you watch him train the players, he he's he sets them up um, in training to to kind of cope with very specific scenarios um, for the, the teams he's setting up against. So I watched him last week uh, before the Br Bristol game, and he was he was he, you know he kind of literally had them completely set up in a position and, you know, working on every single individual player of that Bristol team and how they were going to move um, and how they would respond to to it when they did so that they're completely and utterly prepared for that. And I think that's not necessarily done in the States in quite the same way. Mm. Let's look at where we are over here and whether we do enough to help the game yeah. as a bigger picture. Case in point being, well, two, two examples really. Um, you know, the Premier League not allowing the men's team to change their fixture against Southampton, which would have enabled, obviously, a lot more supporters to go to Wembley, West Ham supporters to go to Wembley. And also, like yesterday, Brighton have actually you know, made that quantum leap and actually allowed the game to be in their main stadium. Arsenal play, and the women's team plays and wins the league on the same, simultaneously with their first team. Are we doing enough, or is, are the authorities doing enough to help the women's game? I think it's really difficult because I think it's interesting how the, obviously the Super League is the FA, Women's Super League, so the FA's got governance of that, whereas the FA's control over the Premier League is very, very different. Politics, an Katie. Yes, Politics. exactly, an issue that keeps kind of coming up again and again in all sorts of different spheres. So for them to ask the Premier League to be sort of altruistic and to move fixtures and you can understand the political motivations behind why they do and don't do certain things but it would be it just would make sense for everybody involved and surely is interested is in the interest of 
men's Premier League teams with a women's team to have some sort of dialogue where originally you were looking at a potential WSL title decider of Arsenal versus Manchester City on exactly the same day as the potential men's Premier League title decider, which makes no sense for anybody at all. Um, so yeah, I wonder what the actual discussions are that these parties are having um, around fixture scheduling and things. Because, I mean, I don't agree with the decision not to move the West Ham game. I think they clearly would have been in interest to do it. It wouldn't have been that difficult. T fixtures get moved for TV all the time um, in, without any thought of disrupting fans' travel plans and, um, and whatever. And I just think it would have made so much sense to move that what you can understand as well, the politics that go on with that, that the FA's um, sort of bargaining tools and hand is very limited in face of the power of the Premier League. So I think that's probably a different set of questions about the dialogues and discussions that clubs in the leagues and the governing bodies all have generally about how we organise things and to whose benefit. Mm. It's a double standard that's the problem because, like you say, they can move men's fixtures at the drop of the hat. The Man City fixture that also clashed with the Cup final has been moved to a Monday night for TV. Yeah. So they can move that two days away in onto a Monday evening uh, at the massive detriment of, of the fans going to that game. But shifting the the West Ham-Southampton game a couple of hours earlier is all of a sudden too much of an impact on, on the fans. Suddenly they care, um, which we know they don't. So, uh, like, what is the barrier to them doing it for women's football? Why why haven't they quite reached a point where they're willing to do do it for the sake of the game um, and not just for their pockets. That's the thing, isn't it? Because, I mean, it's like the TV money talks mm. in men's football, so it's very easy for them to shift fixtures because the TV production companies and the money that they're going to pay for the rights carries a lot of weight. Whereas if you're looking at women's teams, and I mean, I know Martin Sammy, we don't always agree with everything that he said, and he's using the argument of, oh, their average attendance is 800 or whatever. It's not an easier bargaining tool to go on with, but I don't agree with that sentiment. Mm. But you can see, like you said, the double standard mm. of it's OK to move things when TV money talks, but mm. not when when the interest of half the population talks. And when there's yeah. a clamouring from West Ham fans to yeah. do it as well. You sure. know, you've, you've got West Ham fans saying they're going to leave that game early to get over to the cup final, which says it all. Well, you know, we, we want we want this cup final to, again, break the record for the biggest attended uh, women's football match in this country. But we're not going to do that if we're asking fans to cut out of the game early to get there. Um, or, you know, there's a trouble on the trains, so Manchester City are having to put on coaches to get mm. fans down to it. Um, it's it's just, there always seems, where there's a will, there's a way in the men's game, but when it's the women's game, it's, oh, this problem is insurmountable, we can't mm. we can't deal with it, and that's what frustrates me. Because it's ironic, Rich, that I get the sense on the ground that the bigger clubs are now more committed to the women's game. You know, I was at Arsenal before the, the Brighton game, talking to... Jamal Tomorrow and, and Jordan Nobbs, they were making the point that at Arsenal, integration is now becoming almost seamless between the men's and the women's games in terms of the support structures and the science and everything else around it. As a rule of thumb, are the bigger clubs taking it more seriously now? Oh, they are. I mean, like you said, Arsenal, there's a great example. Chelsea's another one. You know, they used to have very, very little in terms of facilities and now they've got their own you know, training space, Manchester City obviously have their own, not their own, obviously they share it with the academy, but, you know, they have equal access to everything. They have their own stadium that they play at. Manchester United have come in, obviously, and, you know, whatever the questions about which league they should have been in and, and everything, you know, the commitment they've put into building that squad in, sh in such a short space of time, the money they've put in. Even West Ham, you know, obviously we just spoke about them, but, you know, they have to show commitment to have done what they've done in their first season. 
I think Liverpool's always been the question mark in terms of their commitment in the last few years. But And Tottenham now as well, obviously, they've got a good chance of getting promoted. They need a point from the last two games. And, you know, I think if they can, they're, they're making some serious strides, getting Heather Cowan in as, as GM from Birmingham, because she's always done a fantastic job. So, yeah, I think you look at the big six Premier League teams and I think all of them, bar maybe one, you know, Liverpool have got money, they've got a good budget and I, I think in the future they will get back to maybe not winning titles, obviously, like they did three or four years ago. But I think there is there is a commitment there from Liverpool to to be higher than where they are. But yeah, Man City, Arsenal, Chelsea, United and, and obviously Tottenham coming in now as well. I think the commitment in terms of the equality and, and obviously building good squads is, is definitely much higher than it was three, four years ago. Mm. Let's look at Arsenal as champions, third title, you know, as I said, first since 2012. What were the key factors and the key individuals in that, in that victory? Key factors, I think uh, last season when Joe came in, the team had really struggled defensively. They conceded eight goals in the first three games. They went on to concede, uh, I think, nine in the whole rest of the season. Um, and three of those were in a game against Birmingham. So, like, massively throwing off that that figure and he he kind of he started at the base he took them back to basics is is what kind of Leah Williamson and the uh, defenders have said um, and built a base for, for for the kind of forward players to flourish off um, and to feed feed those forward players and, and that was the key like last season it also reaped the rewards of of, um, of a Continental Cup final win which uh, I don't think many would have necessarily expected at that time and then uh, and then this season, he's had that foundation to kind of build upon and allow the players to to kind of flourish creatively. Um, then also at the same time, um, I think he's managed the squad extremely well, given the really insane number of injuries that they've had. That I don't think would probably ever happen to quite the same extent again. That's how that's kind of how many they, they, they've gone through and have sacrificed the cups essentially to prioritise the league and getting into the Champions League because that's what they've wanted to do. Um, from from day one, really, of of him of him getting in. So for me, they're they're the kind of two key factors. Um, having a very very versatile squad, uh, players that can play in a lot of different positions, has really helped him with the the management of players during kind of times of injury. Van Donk's played all across. Uh, Dominic Bloodworth played at the back and all across midfield. Um, they all switch up. They all interchange. Um, and then you've obviously got a, a incredibly potent striker in. Vivian Midmer at top, um, who has really, it's cliched, but score goals for fun. Um, uh, but it's not just her goal scoring ability, it's her, the way she's interacted with the, the kind of players around her um, and pulls players away and creates space for, for Van der Donk to come in and get over 10 goals this season, for Beth Meads to be able to, to do the same, um, for players to overlap on the outside. Lisa Evans has been brilliant at that. Um, Katie McCabe, they've they've had so many goals come from across uh, the entirety of their their kind of midfield and forward players that that it's that's that's been the key. But at the back, there's been this base they built last season, which really it struck, is a starting point. It struck me speaking to to Joe was that you know one he's empathetic, mm. but two he's he's got such an open personality that I could imagine people wanting to play for him. Is that right? 
I think so, yeah. I mean, I think I think anyone that's kind of complained about him or anything like that. I mean, in, we, we spoke to, obviously, Jordan Nobbs writes a column for us at the Telegraph and she mm. was saying, you know, her one on how Arsenal won the title and stuff will be out this week and she's saying that the amount of trust that he has in them as players to trust to say, oh, I'm, I'm fit or I'm not ready yet and the amount of trust of that, just that she was saying that how it's very trendy at the moment in football to send everyone off on SAS weekends and camping trips and kayaking or whatever to try and force them together. And he just had a great trust that we spend time together on the pitch and we work on the pitch outwards, then everything else will follow. So it's a little bit in that sense of him just having a great trust of them, but also him being very knowledgeable as a coach. I mean, he's retired at 28. Um, so from that point onwards, he's sort of obsessively... Um, studying tactics and systems, the Milan teams of the 80s and the Brazil teams and the Spanish teams and the really like the Dutch teams and working out what he wants to do as a manager. And you can see all those influences blending together into his team. So it's not surprising when we're talking about them having 11 different nationalities or four different, four, only four English players or whatever. It's not a surprise to see that he's managed to fuse them together so, as well as he has. Mm. Speaking of Spanish clubs, Barcelona reached their first Champions League final yesterday, um, overcoming Bayern. Um, Phil Neville was there watching Tony Duggan. Um, what would be the wider impact, you think, of Barcelona making the, you know, the Champions League final? It's such a huge club. It's a totemic social institution as much as anything else. Mm. That's going to do wonders for the game in Spain, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's a, it shows a bit of a a shift change as well because it's the first time in quite a while we haven't had a German side mm. in the final. We've never had a Spanish side. So, you know, you talk then about the big English clubs showing a commitment. You know, Barcelona have done things. A couple of years ago, really, Barcelona were not the giant, you know. Well, Real Madrid don't even bother yeah. to have a team. I mean, like. they had the reputation of being Barcelona, but their team didn't match the reputation. They put a lot of money into it to get players like Tony Duggan, you know, Lika Martins went in that same summer as well. and. You know, to be in the Champions League final, you know, two years on, thrilled for Tony, obviously, first and foremost. But, yeah, I think it shows that, you know, the German clubs, the French clubs now, they're not going to have it easy. You know, obviously, you make Lyon the favourites. They've won it three years in a row. They've got world-class players. But, yeah, in Spain, you know, obviously, Atletico have got a very strong team. We've seen the attendances they're getting when they're playing at the, the men's stadiums. And, yeah, I think to have Barcelona in it, I mean, you know, they're going to keep strengthening they're going to have some good players going in there in the summer. I think Barcelona, for years to come now, we will look at as a real force in the women's game and not just the men. Mm. Sadly, Chelsea not in the final. Susie, you and Katie were there yesterday. Um, close, but no cigar. Yeah, that probably sums it up. Um, over the two legs, I'd say that kind of Leon. Um, Lucy Bronze said it best, didn't really get out of second gear in that they, they they didn't play the kind of very, very fluid, exciting football that we're, that we're kind of used to. But that was, I think that's very much because Chelsea set up so well to 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 counter it and to um, and and to protect themselves uh, against that threat. I think they nullified a lot of Leon's forwards for much of the game yesterday. There was kind of a brief period in the first half where, where Leon kind of had the kind of usual swagger, but it was maybe 10 minutes, you know, it wasn't the massive stretch, uh, stretches of the game they used to. Their manager, um, Reynold Pedro, said afterwards that, that, they're, that they're just really used to dominating uh, and and basically not being tired in games. And this really tested them mentally and physically. And you could see that when the players kind of felt their knees at the final whistle, you know, absolutely exhausted. It, it's just not an environment they're, they're, they're kind of used to being in uh, on a football pitch. 
definitely think it's the best I've seen a team play against Leon in the past couple of years. Um, you know, really kind of went toe to toe with them, as Emma Hayes said. And um, uh, I think, you know, it was a real testament to her as a coach. Um, you know, she coached and prepared the players extremely well for that game. It's disappointing they didn't get something out of it, but mm. it, it's Leon. They're, they're, they are the best team in the world. Yeah, because Emma, I thought she was really hard on herself afterwards, where she basically said, look, blame me for the season, you know, mm. have a new baby. It just took me time to get into the flow of football again. Um, she's always impressed me whenever I've met her. Um, you know, she basically dropped the veil with, with you guys, didn't she? Yeah. Letting you in, in the mm. build-up to the games, to bring in Holocaust survivors in to get a sense of perspective. Just give me, almost like answer her back. Well, actually, what has she done which is almost more important than results? Where do you start? I mean, I think in terms of what she has done for Chelsea as a club in the last five or six years or however long she's been, seven years, is it? I seven, think, yeah. yeah. When we were, when, and she was saying that when we were in her office, she invited us in and ran through her tactics from the Leon game and all of her planning and her thinking and everything and just basically said that years and years ago they, they didn't even have like a chair belonging to women's football. Now they've got massive scouting networks, offices, tactics teams, everything is there for them to be successful. Um, but also as a pioneer for the women's game, the things that she talks about, the issues that she raises, awareness of when she speaks, she just is a great speaker and someone really considered and thoughtful about the game. Um, and the way that she's prepared that team, just that everyone was looking at that Leon team and saying there isn't a poss there isn't a weak point in that team. And she was saying, well, actually, here you go, X, Y, Z, this is what I'm going to try, this is why I'm not going to do this. And the way that she prepared them of just being very relaxed, keeping their feet on the ground, knowing the massive sense of perspective from obviously bringing in the Holocaust survivor, but also her own story of she's had a son, but she's also lost a child as well, I think it's given her a huge sense of perspective. But I think it was interesting when her saying that yesterday about, oh, you know, it's my fault, I've had a baby, I wasn't at my best, it was a really interesting thing for her to say because, I mean, it's, we, we, I do think she's too harsh on herself because I think it's a strange, as we said, there's so few um, games in the league, there is no margin for error, they should have been really in an FA Cup final, they just didn't finish the chances, very unlucky to be seen off by the own goal that they were seen off. Why so, why so many own goals, by the way? Just bad luck. Just yeah. Really bad luck. I mean, they've they've not been kind of you know literally booting the ball into the back of your own net. They've been coming off the back of a heel and things like that. Or you know the game the game yes um, against Leon uh, the second leg. It was kind of deflected off of um, Mielder's leg. You know it, they've not been. It, it's just been luck. Really mm. desperately bad luck. Emma's all, all, always said or said to me anyway that she feels that the the WSL will become the biggest league in the world. So for that to happen, players will come in. You know, we talked about maybe City uh, earlier on trying to produce their own, but the reality is bigger players might come in from abroad, money will increase. Um, who are the clubs in that era, Rich, who will benefit? It's a difficult one because, so the ones coming into it, you know, mentioned before, Manchester United, West Ham, Tottenham, you know, they're coming into it at a really good time as the game's taking off, but in terms of being the best league in the world, I mean, it's hard because, you know, when you actually sit down and think, Man City have only been around five years, Chelsea have only been full-time five years, Manchester United have been around 12 months, you know, Lyon have been doing it a long time, Wolfsburg have been doing it a long time, you know, the Swedish teams, the US teams have been doing it a long time, and their national teams were winning World Cups in years where we weren't even qualifying. So we're still a long way behind, and I think, 
how do you catch a Leon? You know, they've got a world-class player in, in almost every position. They're not just going to suddenly leave en masse and come to England. And, you know, I was speaking to someone at Chelsea recently, actually, about recruitment and bringing players in this summer. And you know, I said, it's hard because you look at Chelsea's team, there's no visible weakness. OK, maybe they need a, a top-class clinical number nine. But you can't just go out and get a Sam Kerr or an, an Arda Hegerberg or Penile Harder because they're at top clubs getting paid a lot of money. So you look at Chelsea's team and go, well, they must need something because they've not won a trophy this year and they're not in the Champions League. But how do you attract the top players away from where they already are? I think that's the big question. And Chelsea are finding it hard, Man City are finding it hard because money's going up, agents are getting more involved, they're asking for more money, clubs are asking for more money. And actually, you know, to become the best league in the world, you need the best players. And I'm not sure at this stage we're actually at a point where we can get them yet. I think we get some very good players. Don't get me wrong, but when you look at the Kerrs, the Hegerbergs, the Harders, they're in America, France, Germany. You know, really, you'd say possibly one or two world-class players in the whole league. You look at players like Miedemar. But I think in terms of the recruitment and making this the best league in the world, I think there's still some challenges ahead for all the, even the top, top clubs. Mm. What do you expect Manchester United to do on promotion, Susie? Uh, well, Casey said she's going to sign players, um, and she'll have to. I mean, her uh, squad is quite small, very, very young. Um, Average age, what, 22, isn't it? Yeah, and, um, you know, quite inexperienced at top-level football. I mean, she, she makes a point a lot that um, most of her players hadn't played um, uh, in the WSL before. Um, it's only kind of the marquee ones that had. Um, and so she will have to bring some experience into that squad, and she will have to let some players go. Um exactly what that balance is it's hard to say uh, and then whether it's kind of some of the kind of the players that be more on the fringe are the ones that make way or whether they they kind of are, are more brought into the fold is another thing as well because mm, it's a strange thing isn't it that almost adversity has been good for them this season you know they had a couple of defeats you actually probably learn a lot more in defeat than you would do with a fairly routine win mm, I mean me and Susie have sort of had this discussion a lot about whether they were right to go into that league because obviously they're a full-time team that are very heavily resourced in a league where all the other teams or most of them are part-time players they're teachers they're accountants they're training two or three times a week and ultimately no matter how well they play that fitness gap or that scouting gap or the analysis gap or whatever nine times out of ten has told eventually it's only been very rarely that they've been matched in that league but um then you've obviously got the other side of that argument is they had only two or three weeks to throw a team together. Um, very similar to West Ham, they've got a lot of very young players coming like Lauren James, um, for instance, is 17, but is an exceptional in the championship this season. Um, so they, you can see both sides to it, but equally it's interesting, you think, from the FA's perspective, did they kind of want a Manchester United team that was successful straight away? Because if they've gone into the Super League, the evidence has kind of been that they're a mid-table-ish Super League side. They're not... They, I think they, they really gave Arsenal a fright, but ultimately lost, but they've sort of lost against Reading, beat Liverpool, beat Brighton, but they're sort of that mid-table Super League side rather than the top four. Whereas I think next season, now that they've had a year to bed in, 
I think rightly or wrongly what we want from a Manchester United women's team is we expect them to be successful. We expect them to push the women's game onto the next level. And I think next season they're going to be in a position where you're going to have the first ever Manchester derby in the Super League. You're going to have them competing at a higher level potentially because they've had a year to get used to everything than they would have done if they'd gone straight into the Super League when you could have seen them losing or struggling a little bit or having a bad patch and then everything going a bit flat rather than when the championship this season, they've kind of broken all the attendance records and raised everyone else's attendances around them because of the Man United effect when they've played teams. Mm. The FA have sacrificed, like, have made a lot of sacrifices uh, in getting to this stage of having a fully professional league. A lot of teams have fallen by the wayside. Mm. Um, and this was another sacrifice for them. They were happy to let this season be skewed massively and for the other teams in that league to kind of take the hit results-wise and the effect that that has on morale and their fan base and all those kind of things. They were happy for that to happen because it gave Man United this preparation for the for the top. Mm. Whether that's a right thing or a wrong thing um, is kind of just personal opinion. I, I, I don't necessarily think that was the right thing to do, but I don't begrudge Man United for doing it no. because for them, it, it made complete sense for all the reasons Katie outlined. Yeah, because you know, the clubs now, you've got something you know, to build upon, something to market. Um, we talked about this subject before and addressed it about when is where is the best stage. Now, if you've got a Manchester derby next season, would you like to see that at Old Trafford? It's a tough one. I mean, it's, it's really hard to say what the demand for it would be. I think if you market it right, it's not clashing with other big games. You've got a very good chance, probably more so at the Etihad, just because it is slightly smaller in attendance than Old Trafford, of getting a good crowd, but... They can't fill it for the men's. Well, exactly. <laughs> I think... You'll get some stick for that. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's... Um, you know, I'm a big fan of the same walk before you can run, and it's difficult. Lee holds a few... You know, CFA, then you think, is 7,000 enough for a Manchester derby? Is the Etihad or Old Trafford too big? I don't know, but... For me, I'd like to see a full CFA, you know, in the WSL, 7,000 people or, you know, a full Lee Sports Village first. And, you know, these are these clubs' home grounds. You know, Man City have got that academy, so they don't have to move around, so they don't have to play outside Manchester, so they don't have to play at the Etihad. Um, I think there'll be a discussion about it maybe in years to come, but I think next season I'd like to see us, you know, fill out the stadiums we've already got kind of thing. But I think going back on, on Casey as well, I think almost her biggest task is, is this summer rather than... Obviously, last summer was difficult. You know, they had to recruit 21 players, but she's been so big. And I was speaking to Susie on Team United mm. and all the off-field things, and she's made that team so close. Mm. You've got to, you know, it's got to be quite delicate when you start to break that up now. You know, they will be letting players go. They will be releasing players, and they will bring big names in, you know, and it won't just be British players. There'll be players coming from abroad that you know have different personalities that maybe have got bigger egos and i think you know you then have to keep that together i think casey's one of the best people in the country to do that but i think that's actually almost going to be a, a bigger task for her than even last summer mm. is that a feature of the women's game where you get stellar players having an, a swifter maybe even easier transition into into coaching i think it's sort of perceived as rightly or wrongly 
easier to manage in general in women's football than it is men's football. So I think if you look at the Phil Neville situation, for example, the England men's job, I don't know in what world the England men's job would go to someone who hadn't applied for it, just sort of heard about it at a party or whatever, didn't have the qualifications or whatever. Whereas in women's football, you saw Mark Sampson wasn't qualified for the England job. So that's the last two people that have gone for that job have had kind of the rules bent for them or have not been qualified for it and still got it. And I think... Um, you've seen it's generally very easier to sort of get higher up in the women's game than it is in the men's game because nowhere would you have in the men's game a man with one first team game under his belt managing the national team it just wouldn't happen um so i think in general it's seen as perhaps easier to get further up the managerial ladder quicker um whether it is then seen as a stepping stone into the women, men's game i'm not sure afterwards because actually the pattern is the other way that people are coming out of the um men's game into the women's game, so not just Neil Redfern and Phil Neville being the big two, but Fran Alonso at Lewis, um, for instance. Um, so you're seeing it working the other way rather than, for example, when uh, England did really well at the World Cup in 2015, the talk of, is Mark Thompson going to be Swansea manager or would he kind of go to a middling Premier League club as they were at the time, if offered the chance to. Um, so it's interesting that the dialogue is always, will these players is... Phil Neville being groomed for Gareth Southgate's job in however many years' time when actually you're looking at the pattern so far is that people, Bruno Cherie, for example, is PSG's technical director. The pattern's actually the other way that men are, more men from the men's game are coming into men's football rather than coaches going the other way. Willie Kirk said it as well. Um, very open about it when, I first, when he first joined Everton, moving from being Casey's assistant at Manchester United. He said that because he um, had coached men's youth football up in, in Scotland as well as Hibs and Hibs women's team um, and he moved back uh, into women's football when he moved to Bristol and you know he said I was able to move up quicker and that's why I like it but he also said that another big plus is that the, that the way you coach players is different and and, um, um, and it, uh, coaching women is, is a different experience to coaching men in that um, Women players will often question you a lot more about why why you're making certain decisions or why you're doing something in particular, um, because they're very very invested in in uh, in, in what they're doing. Uh, whereas a ma you, you tell a, a male player to do something, they will go and do it. Whereas a woman wants to know the reason why the science behind it or the 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 logic of the tactical decision, they want to know all of that. And that make you know he was saying that that also makes you a better coach because because you're having to justify yourself so much more. And that's why he enjoys it. He you know he he said you know very much you know he kind of went back into the women's game because you know he could go you know he straight away went in uh, as a manager of a WSL side he was never ever going to walk into a, a Premier League club and be a manager uh, straight away after coaching youth football for a bit and kind of floating around a bit so he said you know it's the opportunity that he got and the fact that you can move up very very quickly but then at the same time there are all these brilliant aspects about coaching in the women's game that he really really enjoys. I think it's a different challenge as well because I think mm. in women's football you have a lot of financial constraints but you also have a lot more freedom to do certain things because I mean how many men's clubs can we honestly say are built in the image of their manager and the idea of the manager kind of having the keys to the kingdom is a very outdated idea looking at potentially Bielsa at Leeds Chris Wilder Eddie Howe Sean Dyche probably about five or six or seven in the whole four divisions maybe the Cowley brothers it's a very sort of tight circle or small circle of men managers in the men's game that are allowed to sort of dictate everything from the top down whereas in women's football it's far more common for you to have a manager who can 
revolutionise a club from the top down and build everything in their image. And for all, it's more challenging with things like finances, even basic things like whether players are insured or attendances and filling crowds. There's a lot more different skill set that you're being asked to do, but it's also potentially a little bit more fulfilling and maybe the job stability is there a little bit more. There's not necessarily demands that are going to see you sacked after one bad run or the first however many... Uh... Okay. As a final point, you know, it's award seasons. PFA choose Vivian Miedemar as their Player of the Year, Football Rights Association, uh, Nikita Paris. Who got it right? Personally, my Player of the Year is uh, is Miedemar, um, but I can understand the vote for Paris as well because um, for the Football Rights Association, it's it's Footballer of the Year rather than Player of the Year, so it's it's about it's about a bit more than than what's on the pitch. I voted for Sterling for that reason in the in the FWA vote as well. Um, and Paris does do quite a lot with with um, with her academy and with, with her academy. Yeah. Um, she was at Parliament the other day doing some stuff with a charity. Um, and you know we get those press press releases dropping into our inbox. It's about the kind of things she's doing. Viv doesn't do that as much, but for me, um, what Viv has done on the pitch this season warrants every award coming. I mean, she's broken every record and has, has just been so superb that that outweighs even that in that in that award for me. But it was a very very tight vote. There was one vote in it, so I mean, everyone's a winner. <laughs> uh, Rich, would you have done the same, or did you do the same? Yeah, I voted for Miedemar. So yeah, I mean, I get what Susie's saying. You know, Nikita. On the field has been fantastic and obviously off the field done a lot of great work. Maybe I'm a bit more of a traditionalist that I just vote on the football. So, you know, Miedemar, she scored the most goals. She got a lot of assists as well, you know, which people forget. She's not just a goal scorer. And at the end of the day, you know, her team's won the league as well. So I think for me, deserving winner, like I said, I understand, you know, maybe why people voted for Nikita based on, you know, the more all-round things. But in terms of footballers, yeah, Vivian's been so far ahead of anyone really this season. Did I make it unanimous? Yeah, I would say that for exactly the same reasons as Susie. I think that what Mead Damar has done on the pitch this season has just been so many strides ahead of every other player in the WSL. What I don't like is that you get them being nominated for both awards, Young Player of the Year and Player of the Year, mm, because yeah. Georgia Stanway's won Young Player of the Year but for the PFA, but Vivian Miedemar's won Player of the Year. She was nominated for both. If she's a Player of the Year, then she's also the Young Player of the Year. I mean, just that's just... The logic of it—it yeah. it just doesn't work as a system. You've got to have some kind of age cap, or it's got to be a breakthrough season, or something like that. It can't—it it, it can't just be that you have your, your, your star players in the league nominated for both awards. It just doesn't work for me. Yeah. Well, the PFA probably got it right, but it's amazing to think, isn't it, that 20 years ago, Gordon Taylor, chief executive of the PFA, went to court to try to stop women attending the annual dinner. Thanks for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. 
quince.com slash style. 